Chapter 8, Part 2 of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingstone by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter 8, Part 2 My Life and Troubles During My Residence in Nyas Nyembe. Towards evening we walked back to our own finely situated Tembe in Quihara, well satisfied with what we had seen at Tabora. My men drove a couple of oxen and carried three sacks of native rice, a most superior kind, the day's presence of hospitality from Kamis bin Abdullah. In Uninyembe I found the Livingston caravan, which started off in a fright from Bagamoyo upon the rumour that the English consul was coming. As all the caravans were now halted at Unyanyembe because of the now approaching war, I suggested to Said bin Salim that it were better that the men of the Livingston caravan should live with mine in my tembe, that I might watch over the white man's goods. Said bin Salim agreed with me, and the men and goods were at once brought to my tembe. One day Asmani, who was now chief of Livingston's caravan, the other having died of smallpox two or three days before, brought out a tent to the veranda where I was sitting writing, and showed me a packet of letters, which to my surprise was marked, To Dr. Livingstone, Ujiji, November 1st, 1870, registered letters. From November 1st, 1870, to February 10th, 1871, just one hundred days at Bagamoyo, a miserable small caravan of thirty-three men halting one hundred days at Bagamoyo, only twenty-five miles by water from Zanzibar. Poor Livingstone! Who knows but he may be suffering for want of these very supplies that were detained so long near the sea. The caravan arrived at Unyanyembe some time about the middle of May. About the latter part of May the first disturbances took place. Had this caravan arrived here in the middle of March, or even in the middle of April, they might have travelled on to Ujiji without trouble. On the 7th of July, about 2 p.m., I was sitting on the Bozani as usual. I felt listless and languid, and a drowsiness came over me. I did not fall asleep, but the power of my limbs seemed to fail me. Yet the brain was busy. All my life seemed passing in review before me. When these retrospective scenes became serious, I looked serious. When they were sorrowful, I wept hysterically, and when they were joyous, I laughed loudly. Reminiscences of yet a young life's battles and hard struggles came surging into the mind in quick succession. Events of boyhood, of youth, and manhood, perils, travels, scenes, joys and sorrows, loves and hates, friendships and indifferences. My mind followed the various and rapid transition of my life's passages. It drew the lengthy, erratic, sinuous lines of travel my footsteps had passed over. If I had drawn them on the sandy floor, what enigmatical problems they had been to those around me, and what plain, readable, intelligent histories they had been to me. The loveliest feature of all to me was the form of a noble and true man who called me son. Of my life in the great pine forests of Arkansas and in Missouri, I retained the most vivid impressions. The dreaming days I passed under the sighing pines on the Ojita's shores, the new clearing, the blockhouse, our faithful black servant, the forest deer and the exuberant life I led, were all well remembered and I remembered how one day, after we had come to live near the Mississippi, I floated down, down hundreds of miles, with a wild fraternity of gnarly giants, the boatmen of the Mississippi, 
and how a dear old man welcomed me back as if from the grave. I remembered also my travels on foot through sunny Spain and France, with numberless adventures in Asia Minor, among Kurdish nomads. I remembered the battlefields of America and the stormy scenes of rampant war. I remembered gold mines and broad prairies, Indian councils, and much experience in the new western lands. I remembered the shock it gave me to hear after my return from a barbarous country of the calamity that had overtaken the fond man whom I called father, and the hot, fitful life that followed it. Stop. Dear me, is it the 21st of July? Yes, Shaw informed me that it was the 21st of July after I recovered from my terrible attack of fever. The true date was the 14th of July, but I was not aware that I had jumped a week until I met Dr. Livingstone. We two together examined the nautical almanac, which I brought with me. We found that the doctor was three weeks out of his reckoning, and to my great surprise I was also one week out, or one week ahead of the actual date. The mistake was made by my being informed that I had been two weeks sick, and as the day I recovered my senses was Friday, and Shaw and the people were morally sure that I was in bed two weeks, I dated it on my diary the 21st of July. However, on the tenth day after the first of my illness, I was in excellent trim again, only, however, to see and attend to Shaw, who was in turn taken sick. By the 22nd of July, Shaw was recovered, and then Selim was prostrated, and groaned in his delirium for four days, but by the 28th we were all recovered, and were beginning to brighten up at the prospect of a diversion in the shape of a march upon Mirambo's stronghold. The morning of the 29th I had fifty men loaded with bales, beads and wire for Ujiji. When they were mustered for the march outside the Tembe, the only man absent was Bombay. While men were sent to search for him, others departed to get one more look and one more embrace with their black Delilahs. Bombay was found some time about 2 p.m., his face faithfully depicting the contending passions under which he was labouring. Sorrow at parting from the flesh-pots of Unyanyembe, regret at parting from his dulcinea of Tabora, to be bereft of all enjoyment now, nothing but marches, hard, long marches, to go to the war, to be killed, perhaps, Oh, inspired by such feelings, no wonder Bombay was inclined to be pugnacious when I ordered him to his place, and I was in a shocking bad temper, for having been kept waiting from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. for him. There was simply a word and a savage look, and my cane was flying around Bombay's shoulders, as if he were to be annihilated. I fancy that the eager fury of my onslaught broke his stubbornness more than anything else, for before I had struck him a dozen times he was crying for pardon. At that word I ceased belabouring him, for this was the first time he had ever uttered that word. Bombay was conquered at last. March! And the guide led off, followed in solemn order by forty-nine of his fellows, every man carrying a heavy load of African monies, besides his gun, hatchet, and stock of ammunition, and his ukali pot. We presented quite an imposing sight while thus marching on in silence and order, with our flags flying and the red blanket robes of the men streaming behind them as the furious northeaster blew right on our flank. The men seemed to feel they were worth seeing, for I noticed that several assumed a more martial tread as they felt their royal Joho cloth tugging at their necks, as it was swept streaming behind by the wind. Maganga, a tall Minyamwezi, stalked along like a very Goliath about to give battle alone to Mirambo and his thousand warriors. Frisky Kamisi paced on under his load, imitating a lion, and there was the rude jester, the incorrigible Ulimengo, 
with a stealthy pace like a cat, but their silence could not last long. Their vanity was so much gratified, the red cloaks danced so incessantly before their eyes, that it would have been a wonder if they could have maintained such serious gravity or discontent one half-hour longer. Ulimengo was the first who broke it. He had constituted himself the Kirangozi, or guide, and was the standard-bearer, bearing the American flag, which the men thought would certainly strike terror into the hearts of the enemy. Growing confident at first, then valorous, then exultant, he suddenly faced the army he was leading, and shouted, "'Hoy, hoy!' Chorus, "'Hoy, hoy!' "'Where are you going?' Chorus, "'Going to war.' "'Against whom?' Chorus, "'Against Mirambo.' "'Who is your master?' Chorus, "'The white man.' "'Ow, oh, ow!' Oh. Chorus, "'Ow, ow!' "'Hya, hya!' Chorus, "'Hya, hya!' This was the ridiculous song they kept up all day without intermission. We camped the first day at Bombomas village, situated a mile to the southwest of the natural hill fortress of Zimbili. Bombay was quite recovered from his thrashing, and had banished the sullen thoughts that had aroused my ire, and the men having behaved themselves so well, a five-gallon pot of Pombe was brought, to further nourish the valour which they one and all thought they possessed. The second day we arrived at Masangi. I was visited soon afterwards by Saud, the son of Said bin Majid, who told me the Arabs were waiting for me, that they would not march from Mufuto until I had arrived. Eastern Mufuto, after a six hours' march, was reached on the third day from Unyanyembe. Shaw gave in, laid down in the road, and declared he was dying. This news was brought to me about four p.m. by one of the last stragglers. I was bound to despatch men to carry him to me, into my camp, though every man was well tired after the long march. A reward stimulated half a dozen to venture into the forest just at dusk, to find Shaw, who was supposed to be at least three hours away from camp. About two o'clock in the morning my men returned, having carried Shaw on their backs the entire distance. I was roused up, and had him conveyed to my tent. I examined him, and I assured myself he was not suffering from fever of any kind, and in reply to my inquiries as to how he felt, he said he could neither walk nor ride, that he felt such extreme weakness and lassitude that he was incapable of moving further. After administering a glass of port wine to him and a bowlful of sago gruel, we both fell asleep. We arrived early the following morning at Mufuto, the rendezvous of the Arab army. A halt was ordered the next day in order to make ourselves strong by eating the beeves which we freely slaughtered. The personnel of our army was as follows. Sheikh Said bin Salim, twenty-five half-caste, Sheikh Kamis bin Abdullah, two hundred and fifty slaves, Sheikh Thani bin Abdullah, eighty slaves, Sheikh Musud bin Abdullah, seventy-five slaves, Sheikh Abdullah bin Masood, eighty slaves, Sheikh Ali bin Said bin Nasib, two hundred and fifty slaves, Sheikh Nasir bin Masood, fifty slaves, Sheikh Hamed Kimiami, seventy slaves, Sheikh Hamdam, thirty slaves, Sheikh Said bin Habib, fifty slaves, Sheikh Salim bin Saif, a hundred slaves, Sheikh Sunguru, twenty-five slaves, Sheikh Saboko, twenty-five slaves, Sheikh Saud bin Said bin Majid, fifty slaves, Sheikh Mohammed bin Masood, thirty slaves, Sheikh Said bin Hamed, ninety slaves, The Herald Expedition, fifty soldiers, Nkasiwa's Wanyamwezi, eight hundred soldiers, a hundred and twenty-five half-castes in Wanwanga, 
and three hundred independent chiefs and their followers. This made a total of two thousand two hundred and fifty-five, according to numbers given me by Tani bin Abdullah, and corroborated by a baluch in the pay of Sheikh bin Nasib. Of these men, one thousand five hundred were armed with guns, flintlock muskets, German and French double barrels, some English Enfields, and American Springfields. Besides these muskets, they were mostly armed with spears and long knives for the purpose of decapitating and inflicting vengeful gashes in the dead bodies. Powder and ball were plentiful. Some men were served a hundred rounds each. My people received each man sixty rounds. As we fell out of the stronghold of Mufuto, with waving banners denoting the various commanders, with booming horns and the roar of fifty bass drums called gomas, with blessings showered on us by the mullahs and happiest predications from the soothsayers, astrologers, and the diviners of the Koran, who could have foretold that this grand force, before a week passed over its head, would be hurrying into that same stronghold of Mufuto, with each man's heart in his mouth from fear. The date of our leaving Mufuto for battle with Mirambo was the 3rd of August. All my goods were stored in Mufuto, ready for the march to Ujiji, should we be victorious over the African chief, but at least for safety, whatever befell us. Long before we reached Amanda, I was in my hammock in the paroxysms of a fierce attack of intermittent fever, which did not leave me until late that night. At Umanda, six hours from Mufuto, our warriors bedaubed themselves with the medicine which the wise men had manufactured for them, a compound of matama flour mixed with the juice of a herb, whose virtues were only known to the Wangana of the Winyamwezi. At six a.m. on the 4th of August, we were once more prepared for the road, but before we were marched out of the village, the maneno, or speech, was delivered by the orator of the Wanyamwezi. Words, words, words! Listen, sons of Mkasiwa, children of Wanyamwezi, the journey is before you, the thieves of the forest are waiting. Yes, they are thieves, they cut up your caravans, they steal your ivory, they murder your women. Behold, the Arabs are with you. Alwali of the Arab Sultan and the white man are with you. Go, the son of Mkasiwa is with you. Fight, kill, take slaves, take cloth, take cattle. Kill, eat, and fill yourselves. Go! A loud wild shout followed this bold harangue. The gates of the village were thrown open, and blue, red, and white-robed soldiers were bounding upwards like so many gymnasts, firing their guns incessantly in order to encourage themselves with noise, or to strike terror into the hearts of those who awaited us within the strong enclosure of Zimbizo, Sultan Kolongo's palace. As Zimbizo was distant only five hours from Amanda, at eleven a.m. we came in view of it. We halted on the verge of the cultivated area around it and its neighbours, within the shadow of the forest. Strict orders had been given by several chiefs to their respective commands not to fire until they were within shooting distance of the boma. Kamis bin Abdullah crept through the forest to the west of the village. The Wani and Wazi took their positions before the main gateway, aided by the forces of Saud, the son of Said, on the right, and the son of Habib on the left. Abdullah, Musud, and myself, and others made ready to attack the eastern gate, which arrangement effectually shut them in, with the exception of the northern side. Suddenly a volley opened on us as we emerged from the forest along the Unyanyembe road, in the direction they had been anticipating the sight of an enemy, and immediately the attacking forces began their firing in most splendid style. There were some ludicrous scenes of men pretending to fire, then jumping off to one side, then forward, then backward, with the agility of hopping frogs, but the battle was none the less in earnest. 
The breech-loaders of my men swallowed my metallic cartridges much faster than I liked to see, but happily there was a lull in the firing, and we were rushing into the village from the west, the south, the north, through the gates and over the tall palings that surrounded the village, like so many merry andrews, and the poor villagers were flying from the enclosure towards the mountains through the northern gate, pursued by the fleetest runners of our force and pelted in the back by bullets from breech-loaders and shotguns. The village was strongly defended, and not more than twenty dead bodies were found in it, the strong thick wooden paling having afforded excellent protection against our bullets. From Zimbizo, after having left a sufficient force within, we sallied out, and in an hour had cleared the neighbourhood of the enemy, having captured two other villages, which we committed to the flames after gutting them of all valuables. A few tusks of ivory and about fifty slaves, besides an abundance of grain, composed the loot, which fell to the lot of the Arabs. On the fifth, a detachment of Arabs and slaves, seven hundred strong, scoured the surrounding country, and carried fire and devastation up to the boma of Wiliankuru. On the sixth, Saud bin Said and about twenty other young Arabs led a force of five hundred men against Wiliankuru itself, where it was supposed Mirambo was living. Another party went out towards the low wooded hills, a short distance north of Zimbizo, near which place they surprised a youthful forest thief asleep whose head they stretched backwards and cut it off as though he were a goat or a sheep. Another party sallied out southward, and defeated a party of Mirambo's bushwhackers, news of which came to our ears at noon. In the morning I had gone to Said bin Salim's tembe, to represent to him how necessary it was to burn the long grass in the forest of Zimbizo, lest it might hide any of the enemy. But soon afterwards I had been struck down with another attack of intermittent fever, and was obliged to turn in and cover myself with blankets to produce perspiration, but not, however, till I had ordered Sean Bombay not to permit any of my men to leave the camp. But I was told soon afterwards by Selim that more than one half had gone to the attack on William Kuru with Saud bin Said. About six p.m. the entire camp of Zimbizo was electrified with the news that all the Arabs who had accompanied Saud bin Said had been killed, and that more than one half of his party had been slain. Some of my own men returned, and from them I learned that Uledi, Grant's former valet, Mabruki Katalabu, killer of his father, Mabruki, the little, Baruti of Usegua, and Ferahan had been killed. I learned also that they had succeeded in capturing Wiliankuru in a very short time, that Mirambo and his son were there, that as they succeeded in effecting an entrance, Mirambo had collected his men and after leaving the village, had formed an ambush in the grass on each side of the road between Wiliankuru and Zimbizo, and that as the attacking party were returning home laden with over a hundred tusks of ivory, and sixty bales of cloth, and two or three hundred slaves, Mirambo's men suddenly rose up on each side of them, and stabbed them with their spears. The brave Saud had fired his double-barrelled gun and shot two men, and was in the act of loading again when the spear was launched, which penetrated through and through him. All the other Arabs shared the same fate. This sudden attack from an enemy they believed to be conquered so demoralized the party that, dropping the spoil, each man took to his heels, and after making a wide detour through the woods, returned to Zimbizo to repeat the dolorous tale. The effect of this defeat is indescribable. It was impossible to sleep, from the shrieks of the women whose husbands had fallen. All night they howled their lamentations, and sometimes might be heard the groans of the wounded who had contrived to crawl through the grass unperceived by the enemy. Fugitives were continually coming in throughout the night, but none of my men who were reported to be dead were ever heard of again. 
The seventh was a day of distrust, sorrow, and retreat. The Arabs accused one another for urging war without expending all peaceful means first. There were stormy councils of war held, wherein were some who proposed to return at once to Unyanyembe and keep within their own houses, and Khamis bin Abdullah raved like an insulted monarch against the abject cowardice of his compatriots. These stormy meetings and propositions to retreat were soon known throughout the camp, and assisted more than anything else to demoralize completely the combined forces of Wenyamwezi and slaves. I sent Bombay to Said bin Salim to advise him not to think of retreat, as it would only be inviting Mirambo to carry the war to Unyanyembe. After dispatching Bombay with this message I fell asleep, but about one thirty p.m. I was awakened by Salim, saying, "'Master, get up! They are all running away, and Kamis bin Abdullah is himself going!' With the aid of Salim I dressed myself, and staggered towards the door. My first view was of Thani bin Abdullah being dragged away, who, when he caught sight of me, shouted out, "'Bana, quick! Mirambo is coming!' He was then turning to run, and putting on his jacket, with his eyes almost starting out of their sockets with terror. Kamis bin Abdullah was also departing, he being the last Arab to leave. Two of my men were following him. These Salim was ordered to force back with a revolver. Shaw was saddling his donkey with my own saddle preparatory to giving me the slip and leaving me in the lurch to the tender mercies of Mirambo. There were only Bombay, Mabruki Speak, Chanda, who was coolly eating his dinner, Mabruk Unyoyembe, Mtamani, Juma, and Samian, only seven out of fifty. All the others had deserted, and were by this time far away except Uledi, Manwasera, and Zaidi, whom Selim brought back at the point of a loaded revolver. Selim was then told to saddle my donkey, and Bombay to assist Shaw to saddle his own. In a few moments we were on the road, the men ever looking back for the coming enemy. They belaboured the donkeys to some purpose, for they went at a hard trot which caused me intense pain. I would have gladly lain down to die, but life was sweet, and I had not yet given up all hope of being able to preserve it to the full and final accomplishment of my mission. My mind was actively at work, planning and contriving during the long lonely hours of night, which we employed to reach Mufuto, whither I found the Arabs had retreated. In the night Shaw tumbled off his donkey and would not rise, though implored to do so. As I did not despair myself, so I did not intend that Shaw should despair. He was lifted on his animal, and a man was placed at each side of him to assist him. Thus we rode through the darkness. At midnight we reached Mufuto safely, and were at once admitted into the village, from which we had issued so valiantly, but to which we were now returned so ignominiously. I found all my men had arrived here before dark. Ulimengo, the bold guide who had exulted in his weapons and in our numbers and was so sanguine of victory, had performed the eleven hours' march in six hours, Sturdy Chapare, whom I regarded as the faithfulest of my people, had arrived only half an hour later than Ulimengo, and Frisky Kamizi, the dandy, the orator, the rampant demagogue, yes, he had come third, and Speak's faithfuls had proved as cowardly as any poor nigger of them all. Only Salim was faithful. I asked Salim, Why did you not also run away and leave your master to die? Oh, sir, said the Arab boy naively, I was afraid you would whip me. End of chapter 8, part 2